Hi, I'm Laura Bischoff with the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Welcome back to another special episode of Ohio Politics Explained. Our guest is retired FBI Special Agent Jeff Williams. He supervised the public corruption team in Columbus as well as the House Bill 6 investigation. In the first episode, Williams talked about his career investigating public corruption and arresting Larry Householder. In the second episode, Williams talked about the big news splash they knew that the Householder arrest would make and how super lobbyist Neil Clark fit into the case. Be sure to check out those two episodes. In this episode, Williams talks about informant Tyler Furman and the secretly recorded meetings with Matt Borges, as well as how Juan Cespedes and Jeff Longstreth were crucial to helping the federal case. When uh, Tyler Furman called the FBI, I mean, it seemed like this guy just dropped in out of nowhere while you were investigating, and and you, you get a guy who says, you know, somebody from the refer- from the anti-referendum side was trying to bribe me. And I want to talk to you guys about it. Was this like a investigatory gift from from out of the, out of nowhere? What was your thinking when he just showed up? In in many regards, yes. And I think it kind of epitomizes this investigation. They're just it just seemed like sometimes in investigations you you try different techniques or you you utilize different tools, and sometimes things aren't exactly clear and. This doesn't really corroborate that, and, and, and it can be a lot more frustrating. And without a doubt, this was a very complex investigation. It required an immense amount of uh, work and talent by the lead case agent, Blaine Wetzel, and the federal prosecutors and the team that Blaine had. But this case, it just was like an avalanche of evidence. It just seemed like whether it was the text messages and then it was the bank records that were subpoenaed and following the money the statements to the undercover agents, the statements on the wiretap. And then right during the course of this ballot initiative and this big fight, in walks this individual who has this amazing story that his mentor and someone he had looked up to had offered him a bribe, had offered him money in exchange for inside information to help defeat the ballot initiative for which Tyler Furman was working for. What do you think that says about the defendants that there was so much of a trail on this, that there was so much information you were able to pick up? Did they not think what they were doing was wrong or just were kind of doing it boldly? Well, I think there's a couple of important things about this. One is it goes to show really the great work of the federal prosecutors and the agents involved in this case. Because if we didn't have the wiretap and we didn't have the undercovers and if there weren't certain subpoenas sent, if we didn't you know, manage the situation well with Tyler Furman or Dave Greenspan or any of these other very sensitive witnesses that we were dealing with, then things could have turned out differently. So it was it was a lot of dedication, a lot of hard work that made us successful. But to your point, Jesse, really sort of the braggadocio and the brazenness was over the top. And not just you know, the size of the bribe and the legislation, but really a lot of the language and the tenor and the tone in which the defendants carried themselves during the course of the investigation that we got to observe was, it was jaw-dropping. And it, again, is why I think the complaint goes to great length in the statement of facts, detailing statements that were made, uh, and why many of those tapes were played at the trial for the jury and for the public to hear the conduct and the way, way the defendants carried themselves when they were conspiring to effectuate this plan. Tell us a little bit about the meeting between Matt Borges and Tyler Furman. We saw the video of it where they were sitting at a Starbucks. And I got to say, the FBI does kind of a lousy job of picking a good place 
for meetups because there was like a Brinks truck idling in the background. There was traffic. It was blowing. It was super windy. You know, good audio is not the forte. Well, unfortunately, it never is like it is in the movies. And, it's not? Uh, oh. No, it's, it's uh, you know, there's, there's real life complexities. And, you know, just when you, you think you have a camera right in view of everything, and in, in this particular case, we did. But, you know, we were lucky, uh, quite frankly, uh, if somebody didn't come and sit down in the, in the line of sight of the camera, and then we wouldn't have even had the video of the incident. But that was a, a very interesting day. And for one, you know, nuanced reason, I mean, obviously, it's, it's a big day and, and we're anticipating uh, Matt Borges making a, a bribe payment to Tyler Furman for the information. But, you know, what had been going on uh, during this ballot fight was all sorts of, of antics by uh, Matt Borges and, and the co-conspirators of intimidation and of the, the signature collectors paying them off to leave town, hiring private investigators to follow them around and intimidate them. But on this particular day, when there were meetings with Tyler and, and Matt Borges, we had agents out covering the, the meeting, like we, we often do. And we actually were watching the private investigators that Matt Borges had hired to follow Tyler Furman around were there as well. So they were watching Tyler meet Matt, but we were watching them watch Tyler meet Matt. So, this is like the Spider-Man meme only in real life. Yeah, it's everyone's it pointing like at each other. other. Like a FBI sitcom. We kind of joked that it made for a congested parking lot of, <laughs> uh, of interested parties. You know, Jeff Longstreth and, and Juan Cespedes provided some really um, key testimony um, against Householder and Borges. How did the FBI get them to uh, to cooperate? How did those um, how did those and how did that cooperation advance your case? Well, you hit the nail on the head as far as how the cooperation advanced the case. It's even though in this particular case uh, we had a mountain of evidence. There were, I think, upwards of a thousand exhibits, government exhibits at trial. And we had not only just documentary evidence, but we did have text messages and we did have wiretaps and we did have recordings with cooperating witnesses. You really, the case just moves ahead so much better when you have co-conspirators who can give firsthand account about interactions with the other defendants and can give color and fill in the blanks where a document can't or a text message can't. So... That was extremely important to this investigation. And to the earlier part of your question about how that all worked out, I, I think like if we would look at the timeline as to when Juan Suspedes and Jeff Longstreth entered into a cooperation agreement, the date of that, which I, I don't have memorized, but the date that they pled, it was relatively quickly. This was not something that drug out for six months or a year or whatever. And I think that goes to... A number of things. You know, obviously, it's a personal decision that each of those um, gentlemen came to. But I think it also, I think it's fair to say that it was the strength of our case as well. And the fact that it was laid out in the complaint. And it didn't take a lot of convincing for us. They were relatively quick to come to the table and admit their guilt and uh, be contrite and agree to cooperate in any way they could. And those two guys did their, they each did proper, they, well, you had four of them doing proper sessions, Longstreth, Cespedes, Clark, and Borges. Why do you think Clark and Borges opted not to reach agreement, cooperate, cooperating agreements with the feds? Well, you know, again, it would be somewhat speculative. I mean, 
Matt Borges chose to to go to trial. That was his choice. Clark, you know, we have, at least if you read his book and, and some of the statements that he made to us today that we did proffer him, you know, you, I guess, can glean some information from that as to maybe why he chose to do what he did. He talked about the fact of his father and how that he did not want to be a, a convicted felon. His father served time in prison. Yes. And, and he also talked about how, but I mean, it was more than that. And, you know, he was very animated about the fact that he didn't do anything wrong. And I think that, you know, we talked about that earlier in his book. I think that kind of read, I mean, that's my reading of his book. I don't, I don't see him admitting to involvement in the conspiracy. And uh, that was how his proffer went. He couldn't get beyond the fact that he felt that he didn't do anything wrong. And during our time with him, spent an inordinate amount of time lecturing us on campaign finance and legislation and dirty politics and how that's not criminal, which obviously, quite frankly, he's, he's wrong. And I think the jury has, has, has spoken on that issue, and, and so has the judge. We talked earlier about how the line between you know dirty politics and illegal uh, bribes is this quid pro quo. Can you maybe point to a few like instances in the investigation or even just the trial that really proved that quid pro quo you thought were the most compelling to jurors who ultimately found them guilty of racketeering conspiracy? Well, I'm probably not the best person to ask that. I And I don't mean to be a, a cop out, but I was a, scheduled to be a witness in the in the trial. And so unfortunately, I was uh, precluded from uh, sitting in there every day like you two and observing uh, really which pieces of evidence may have resonated most uh, particularly with the jury. I, I do think, again, I don't think it's, I'm stating anything incorrectly when I say that there, there really was a mountain of evidence. It, the jury returned, that was, that there was a lot of evidence that was uh, presented to that jury over many weeks. And the swiftness which, which they came back with a verdict, I think, spoke volumes. And I think the comments by the, the judge regarding his observation of the evidence and the conduct of the defendants is telling as well. I just want to backtrack a little bit to uh, Juan Cespedes and his testimony, which I know you weren't in the room for, but you know about. And he said that the Energy Harbor executive, John Chiani, that he really was pushing for these House Bill 6 subsidies so that the plants would be more attractive for sale and that Chiani wanted to, you know, like basically pretty them up for sale, have this guaranteed revenue stream and then sell them and that Kiani would pocket $100 million off the sale. And I, I thought that amount was just stunning. What did, what did you think about when you heard that number from, from Cespedes? I think I had the same reaction that you, you had, that that's a lot of money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Without, there's all sorts of other commentary, but at the end of the day, that is an extraordinary amount of money. And I think Mr. Suspitus testified, in addition to that, about how he was requesting millions of dollars from Kiani and because of the work he was going to have to do to rehabilitate himself. Uh, because his reputation. His reputation, because yeah. they, had, they had lobbied so hard for House Bill 6 for the reason that they purported reason that they needed it to keep these... Uh, nuclear plants from uh, going defunct. And yet here 
here shortly thereafter, there there appeared to be a plan to then prop them up with the taxpayer dollar to then sell them to have the chairman of the company make $100 million. So much of the focus so far has been on the people who are bribed, but there have not been charges against the people who are accused of doing the bribing. Uh, obviously, First Energy entered into a deferred prosecution agreement, agreed to pay a $230 million fine, but is there more coming here? Well, I don't work for the FBI anymore, but I can only surmise that Agent Wetzel and, and the team at the FBI and Emily Gladfelder and Matt Singer and, and the team of federal prosecutors are diligently combing through evidence and making assessments as to who may be charged. Uh, and if someone is going to be charged, uh, what they will be charged with. It's really, I don't think I'm, I'm stepping over a line when we, you know, when you have a deferred prosecution agreement, when you have the company has admitted to the fact that it's executives and officers bribed two public officials, one being Larry Householder to the tune of $60 million. And then the second being Sam Randazzo, the chairman of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio for $4.3 million in return for those payments for specific official action from both officials. It's not a stretch to think that, that there may be additional charges that are going to be coming at some point. 